Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm your host, Bonnie Lee, and this is Writing About Crime. This episode would not be possible without the book by Dr. Lee Malure, Rampage, Canadian Mass Murder and Spree Killing. The Wendigo is a Native American legend whose name translates into several meanings, but it's mostly known as the spirit of lonely places. It's also known as the evil spirit that devours mankind. The repeated tale of the Wendigo changes vastly from one vein of storytellers to another, but it is believed that the evil monster finds its home in Canada and in the colder northern states, specifically Minnesota. The origin of this creature is that he was a hunter, lost in the cold wilderness. After long suffering from his hunger, he was entranced into eating human flesh for survival. This cannibalistic behavior caused him to transform into a flesh-seeking monster that scoured the forest for victims, but he can never be satisfied. He is not susceptible to the cold weather of the north and lives in the tall trees of the forest, lurking during the fiercest temperatures. The insatiable creature was frequently described as having been able to mimic the voice of humans, convincing them that he is the voice of their own self-talk. Isolated from food and community and becoming voracious creates the fear that is the open door for the creature to enter. The Wendigo can possess them, cursing them with the insatiable lust for the flesh of his fellow man or woman to finally transition into a Wendigo themselves. The descriptions vary, but most representations of the legend are that he's an oversized yet emaciated figure with bones protruding through his thin skin. His eyes are deep set and owl-like or plain empty sockets. He reeks of death and decay and looks at times variations of part man, part wolf or even werewolf. The Wendigo became predominantly described in the storytelling and beliefs of the Algonquin people. They pass stories of the creature through generations, and while to the stories they changed some core descriptors that never varied much, the Wendigo was a supernatural cannibal. This is the legend and storytelling, as I have mentioned. No one would actually believe that these creatures that have appeared in books, films, and even comic books could ever be more than a story created to scare small children and simple-minded folk from soldiering off into the forest during winter in the early 1800s and beyond. It would be ridiculous until you're familiar with the true crime case of Swift Runner. I am going to tell you all about the family man with a wife and six children who later was hung by the Fort Saskatchewan authorities for murdering and feasting on them. So please, don't leave me. In 1839, a baby named Swift Runner was born. He grew to be a great hunter and trapper. He was quiet but strong and had an exceptionally large frame. Yet, he was stealthy and quick. He was also capable, 
He could craft items used in the war against the neighboring Blackfoot. In fact, during one raid, he reportedly stole himself a horse. He was considered an impressive young man, and therefore he easily wooed a young girl named Sun on the Mountain to marry him. After he gifted that horse to her father. They lived well. Swift Runner was a good provider. He could hunt and used some of the proceeds from his buffalo kill to trade for other items the so-called white man had to offer. Swift Runner's wife had given him the gifts of five children, and in the early days of that marriage, they were all well taken care of. As time went on into the years around 1878 and 1879, near the Sturgeon Creek area, there was a great decline in the number of buffalo in the northern area of Alberta. Because of hunting practices that were unsustainable and prairie fires that prevented many animals from migrating north, the staple for many of the Cree community to eat and use for fashioning warm clothing were basically now rarely seen. Now, Swift Runner was not able to provide for his family as he once had. His family was often going to bed hungry, and it was driving Swift Runner into a deep depression. He couldn't bear the inadequacy and was beginning to carry fear of the future. He was not set up with the tools to adapt to the changes that were happening in the hunting pool. When Swift Runner had anything to trade with the white man, he was now setting his bargaining skills to acquiring whiskey. He was relying on the drink to drive away the internal battle he had in his head and letting out the frustration in the form of aggression and paranoia. The once well-respected Swift Runner was now viewing everyone as his competition and was becoming more and more volatile and unpredictable. He was becoming more and more hopeless about the future and was drinking himself into dangerous rumination that would begin to lead to fantasies of revenge. Those fantasies were so strong that he began to hear voices whispering to him and engaging him to act out on his fury. This combination of insufficient food supply and nourishment with alcohol and depleting mental health was beginning to take its toll. He found himself with no choice other than to slaughter his own family dogs to feed his family. During that time, he could only reflect on what his next option would be, now that they've been pushed this far just to survive. He began to be haunted by the tale that tribal elders shared about an insatiable creature that possessed people's soul and turned them into cannibals. He would go for stretches out in the woods in search of prey and return without a single catch. His gaze was beginning to drift from the woods to the flesh of his own family. The family, seeing that no food was coming to them, set out along with his mother-in-law and his brother to search for their own supply. They left one of the boys behind with Swift Runner to mine the camp. Feeling the effects of starvation and declining mental stability, Swift Runner felt overtaken by the spirit of the cannibal. He attempted to shoot his son while he lay sleeping, but failed to kill him, so he was forced to use a knife and a club to exterminate him. 
then he went on to butcher the boy and consume the meat after cooking it over the fire at his family's camp. This was a key turning open a lock for Swift Runner. While feeling the sensation of fullness and satisfaction, the desire to keep that balance physically set off a trip in him mentally. Soon after, he headed out in search of his family out in the woods, his wife, three daughters, and son Redhawk. She informed him that his brother and her mother had perished due to the harsh conditions and starvation. They continued in search of food, but Sun on the Mountain had a suspicious feeling about Swiftrunner's demeanor, and she had lied to him about the relative's passing. She was the next to be killed, with her two remaining daughters to follow shortly after. Swiftrunner again butchered them for meat and instructed his son to prepare the pot for dinner. They would both consume the meat for their family together. Although they had plenty to eat, Swiftrunner was in a full psychosis and was sure to add the youngest sibling to the cooking pot. The remaining survivors were safe out in the woods for a short time, but Swiftrunner had not lost all of his talents. He hunted them in the trees and murdered his brother and mother-in-law after tracing their footprints in the snow. Their edibles were left hanging in the woods, providing meat for Swift and his boy to consume through the harsh winter. As the weather began to turn, Swift began to surmise his time would soon be up. His crimes would become known, and his one remaining witness, Red Hawk, would have to be extinguished. Even though Swift Runner was no longer in fear of surviving due to starvation, there were now birds available for meat. He would be overcome with his desire for human flesh. And, like the beast he feared becoming, he consumed his son like an insatiable wendigo. Obviously, he didn't take on the appearance of a man on the brink of starvation, as his family members had. He was bringing on suspicions by behaving oddly. He was suffering from terrible nightmares and not sleeping well, while struggling mentally with this demon in him. He had attempted to persuade some children to join him for a hunting trip in the forest, and when people began to share thoughts, it became clearer to them that all signs were pointing to the man being possessed by a demonic spirit that they recognized. They suspected he was a murderer and a cannibal, one they would call a Wendigo. A local priest decided to contact the service of the Northwest Mounted Police, an earlier version of what we now call the RCMP. At first, he and his family could not be located, but by the spring of 1879, he finally found his way to the Catholic mission and announced that he was the last remaining member of his family, and he told the tale of his family perishing from starvation and his wife committing suicide by shooting herself. His recollection of the events seemed unemotional and forced, and he was not convincing. He seemingly could not keep the details of his account in order, and something was alerting the investigators from the information that he was indeed the one who murdered his family. He was arrested, and promptly, Sergeant Steele had a group assembled to search the family's camp for any evidence of the almost certain fact 
that Swift Runner was indeed responsible for the demise of his entire family. Swift Runner was secured and loaded onto a Red River cart and ordered to help the sergeant find the camp. He was obstinate and took every opportunity to get away and even deter the team from the right area intentionally. It was known that Swift Runner had a lust for whiskey. Using that insight, they were able to offer him some drinks and loosen him up enough to agree that he would take them to the camp. It took some time, but they did eventually reach the area the next day, and Swift Runner let out a loud yell right up into the sky. He told the RCMP that the bones found in the immediate area were animal bones that had been cleaned by the critters in the area. But the remains and items found in the camp told a different story. There was a pot left with the remains of human fat and a small skull that had a sock pushed into the eye socket. The team began to gather up the bones and other items that they intended to use in their case for murder against Swiftrunner. Although many had to stop first and yell, swear, and throw up in the woods. Swiftrunner would later admit that he made beef out of his family. Some rumors began to swirl about Swiftrunner murdering and cannibalizing another hunting companion in the years preceding his family's murder. It was suggested that the spirit of the Wendigo possessed him then, when he was forced to consume his friend in order to survive. The nightmares had begun to torture him, and his drinking and mental decline had already been in effect long before his winter downturn. After being convicted of the slaughter and cannibalization of his entire family, Swiftrunner was sentenced to death in the first legal hanging in the Northwest Territories. He would be hung in the next few weeks, so a special scaffolding-type platform was built for the event, and $50 was paid to an army pensioner to serve in the position of hangman. During that time, Swiftrunner's mind began to slowly clear. The sobering idea of being hung for his crimes was setting in. He was beginning to allow himself to feel remorse, and enclosed and confined in such a small space, began playing tricks on his mind. He asked for aid in praying for forgiveness and cleared his mind of his atrocities by confessing the details of the winter where he murdered and consumed the members of his family. When the day finally arrived for Swift Runner to be executed on December 20th at 7.30 a.m. in 1879, it was brutally cold. Over 60 people attended, most never having seen a hanging and were nervous but excited about what was taking place. Swift Runner was brought out into the swirling snow, appearing calm and poised. He was prepared for the hanging, and seemingly at peace with the situation now. The hangman, however, was nervous and had forgotten to bring the straps to bind his prisoner, and other issues were preventing the hanging to happen on time. Sheriff Edward Richard had been delayed by the snow and weather and was flustered by his late arrival at the fort. Then it was discovered that members of the crowd had used some of the trap for the gallows and used it as kindling to start a fire and keep warm as they waited. The sheriff and hangman were working together to get the trap reassembled, and Swiftrunner sat with some of the crowd, warming up by one of the fires 
to keep warm. He was eating pemmican with them and didn't appear nervous or uncomfortable. He was sitting with the noose hanging around his neck as he joked and made conversation. After two hours of delay, it was finally time to move forward with the event. Swift Runner finished his meal and was brought up to the scaffold and a black hood was pulled over his head. When he dropped the five feet down, he fell with tremendous force and didn't struggle long before the crowd. He was left hanging for about one hour and then was cut down from the gallows. Swift Runner was buried in the snow right at the fort where the execution took place. There have been many tales inspired by the folklore of the Wendigo and through movies, television, novels, and even comic books. Characters found in Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, and even battling the Incredible Hulk and Wolverine. Even the humans that transition into the creature have inspired some popular stories. One of my personal favorites is the movie Ravenous. <laughs> I'll never forget almost gagging while hearing the screams of, He was licking me! <laughs> The representations found in popular culture are amusing, but it's the folklore surrounding the flesh-eating monster founded in any real psychological premises. Certainly, there could conceivably be tales woven in the past as part of an explanation for behaviors that occurred during desperate conditions. Possibly even myths created, like a forewarning for people to keep themselves safe and prevent the allure of curing starvation by feasting on your friends and neighbors. But is it possible this creation is the manifestation of a legitimate mental illness born out of the environment of starvation, little sleep, and stresses of not only your own survival, but that of your own family? Especially in the role as provider, the string that holds one's sanity could become precarious under the conditions that existed in the Northern Plains in the late 1800s. It seems to be acknowledged in medical science that there are indeed illnesses that are classified as cultural syndromes or folk illnesses. They're comprised of behavior patterns that surface within a specific culture purely by suggestion and lead to what some term a behavior epidemic. These behaviors are usually abhorrent and repetitive. It's not like a geographical disease that represents as a mental illness. It's more an illness that's defined locally and has no medical cause. Okay, stay with me here. This is confusing. One example to draw a comparison of this cross between medical and anthropological outlooks is something called penis panic or coro. This is also considered a culture-bound syndrome and a delusional disorder that's appeared in societies throughout Asia, Europe, and North America. It's termed genital retraction syndrome, and it's no joke to the patients that are affected by it. So what happens is they believe that their genitals are retracting and disappearing. And it's termed a syndrome of genital shrinkage anxiety and can be serious because it creates a fear of death due to the shrinkage that's perceived in the mind only. So having the disturbing side effect of sufferers is usually a physical method to prevent the shrinkage and retracting of their body parts. 
Some regard it as psychosexual conflict, and that extends from a version of body dysmorphic disorder, like the tales told of what can possess the Wendigo. Some also say the idea is put into the minds of members of some cultures as a deterrent for promiscuity or excessive masturbation. So here's the disconnect. Just because it isn't really happening doesn't mean it isn't real in its manifestation. Take as an example the town of Leroy in New York. In 2011, 14 students attending the same school all exhibited symptoms of what many people considered Tourette's syndrome. They crossed the spectrum of tics, seizure activity, verbal outbursts, and other speech problems. Most of those affected were young female students. After a neurologist and his team investigated the illnesses, they came to the conclusion that the patients were suffering from a mass psychogenic illness. The students and their families became frustrated when it seemed no one could find the cause of these young people's sudden illness. And other suggestions were considered, such as a possible environmental cause resulting from pollution due to a 1970 train derailment in Lee Valley. And that spill consisted of almost 2,000 pounds of cyanide crystals and 30 to 35 gallons of solvent trichloroethylene. Another possibility considered was an illness called PANDAS. It's a strep infection that if caught at an early age can have symptoms such as tics and compulsive repeating behaviors. During the time that these suggestions were investigated, the families and the patients themselves appeared frequently in the media and on social media platforms. Sometimes they were on their own or in groups with each other in an attempt to raise awareness. They were engaging to put and keep pressure on the community and medical professionals to help solve the mystery of what illness they could have shared. As this continued, many had reported increases in the intensity and number of outbursts the more they engaged, as well as up to 20 new patients had reported being affected by the illness. This soon led a group of physicians telling patients to simply stay away from one another, not to talk in person, on the phone, or through social media. They gave them strict instructions to remove themselves from any situation where the media would be reporting on their illness and asked them to seek to avoid each other during the trial phase, in person or otherwise. Slowly, some patients described improved control. Some felt it was due to the treatment they received for their possible strep infections. They reported that the antibiotics seemed to be helping alleviate their symptoms. Others reported that by simply isolating, they'd begun to return to their normal. Others did have treatment for mass psychogenic illness, and they were well enough to attend their graduation that year around other past affected students. It appeared that the symptoms were actually only mentally contagious, and the idea formed that perhaps one student had displayed this illness, and slowly the others around them began to mimic the symptoms off of each other in a way. They began to take on the tics, speech problems, and verbal outbursts that they had observed in each other. There's yet to be a sound medical diagnosis for the events in Leroy, New York. 
now sometimes referred to as the town that caught Tourette's. But what a confusing and amazing case. If you ever get a chance to watch the documentary, I think you can find it on YouTube. It's called The Town That Caught Tourette's. Psychogenic illnesses can affect mass numbers of people that live together in a close social environment in shocking ways. The same way that folklore can affect the mind in more mystical or spiritual ways, especially when one person is open to the influence because of physical or mental weakness. When they're united, a special kind of monster can form, leaving you to contemplate. Did Swift Runner murder his family and cannibalize them? Or was that the work of the Wendigo? Was he overtaken and possessed by a spirit? Or did he, in fact, transform into a monster? I hope you enjoyed that kind of unusual episode. But before you leave, I hope you'll check out this promo by Anxious and Afraid a podcast that covers everything from true crime to the paranormal. They're interested in ghosts, murders, missing persons, and everything else weird and unexplained. Hey guys, I'm Abby. And I'm Shauna. And we're the host of a podcast called Anxious and Afraid. Do you love deep dives into true crime? The paranormal? Strange history? Conspiracies? Well, so do we, and each week we take turns surprising each other with whatever anxiety-inducing subject we are obsessed with that week. Tune in each week to hear Shauna mispronounce words. Um, the guys on the lookout apparently asked for binoculars. Did I say that right? So the photos showed him and his colleague entertaining... <laughs> Wait, am I saying it wrong? Yes! <laughs> and listen in as Abby constantly asks too many questions. I was oh, about to ask you a lot of questions, and I'm glad that you interrupted me. <laughs> I would have told you to shut up. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what Stop I'm trying quizzing to me. Do, okay, okay, you know, I did enough research. <laughs> Let me just tell the damn story. Jesus, continue. Episodes drop every Tuesday, available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find us at our website, anxiousandafraid.com. We're always looking for new friends, so don't forget to rate and subscribe. 